Hi Glamours. On March 15th, the Australian Centre for Public History hosted the second annual Glam Slam event at the State Library of New South Wales. Glam Slam is a day for all those working in or with galleries, libraries, archives and museums, that's the Glam Fam, to come together and talk about the pressing issues facing cultural institutions and to share their work. The CEO of Greenpeace Australia, David Ritter, gave a keynote address in the morning entitled Glam Power as Clean Energy, Bring It On. On this episode of Glam City, we're going back to listen to David's discussion about the role of glam institutions as meaning makers in a changing climate. It's a real call to arms, so I invite you to take a listen. I've sort of tried to wear orange, but more importantly... I've got my glam shoes on! (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. They only last for three hours and David Ritter from Greenpeace has already told me they're not environmentally friendly. (laughs) David's the CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific and we asked him to do this long before the Children's March for Climate was mooted for this day, but our timing could not be better. And the march is due to go past the State Library, I think, at the same, about the time that lunch happens, so we can all go out and uh, cheer them on. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome to the stage David Ritter. Thank you, Tamsin. You've just conformed to every stereotype of what filthy hippies like me are like, taking the fun out of everything. See a pair of flashing shoes, not environmentally sound. As I said to Tamsin, it reminded me of a conversation the other day when a colleague came into a meeting, colleague from outside the environmental movement, and I said, how are you feeling today? And she said, wonderful, I can feel the glitter inside. And I said, so you've ingested microplastics. (laughs) It is um, an unfortunate stereotype, and actually I don't think it's true. I want to start by saying something a little bit personal And I know that um, other than Tamsin, who I have met once or twice before, but I have not, uh, I think, met um, the vast majority of you before, but I just have to say it. I love you. (laughs) And I love you because the work that you do is the source of so much of what has given my life meaning. So I want, to, I want to talk about what you can do with these reservoirs of love that you nurture, that you tend. And let's start with this cheery... Oh, there he goes, he's done it again. Don't wear your, don't wear your glittery shoes and, uh, and oh, now the end of the world. Now, the reason why I have some of these things in screen grab of media slide form is because one of the things you learn when you live inside uh, the bubble of a campaigning organisation, which is always trying to shift the politics, is that you start to think that everybody else knows what's going on in the thing you are working on. Now, this was a lesson I learned uh, uh, at a dinner party in the UK more than a decade ago when the person next to me said, so what are you working on at the moment? And I said, well, mackerel quotas, of course. And they looked at me with a sort of blank expression. I said, you know, the mackerel quotas issue. Unsurprisingly, they were not up to date on the mackerel quotas issue, despite the fact that the European Common Fisheries Policy is surprisingly absorbing as a dinnertime conversation. (laughs) 
Now, what this uh, article in The Guardian from uh, October last year warns, as articles in all of the uh, real news media outlets around the world uh, did warn, was that a special report was published of the Nobel Prize-winning International Panel on Climate Change saying that we have, if we're lucky, a dozen years left to take unprecedented radical action to shift to a uh, zero-carbon world to avoid planetary catastrophe. Now, the significant things about this report is it's the first time that the IPCC modelled the different the consequences of of 1.5 degrees and the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees and made the entire report around that and it's extremely grim reading but the reason why i put it up is because you can't actually assume knowledge of it and i had multiple experiences in the weeks following the publication of the report where i would say in conversation something about this document and i'd just get blank looks um, because for various reasons people screen out the possibility of the end of civilization from their feeds but this is where you come into things as we'll um, come back to uh, in a minute so screen grab number one And maybe, just maybe, some of you are feeling, well, 12 years, that's all right, we'll sort it out then, right? 12 years, that's quite a long time away. This summer we have seen a range of really ugly consequences of climate change break on Australia. Perhaps you remember the week when that great big red blotch landed on where Australia used to be on the weather maps and even the sort of grinning weather forecasters found it difficult to smile through something that was clearly apocalyptic. Anyone who has been to Port Augusta knows that it can be a rugged enough place, but Port Augusta in 49.5 degrees, perhaps even more so. Then we saw temperate rainforests in Tasmania, forests that shouldn't burn, shouldn't ever burn, burn to the ground, um, World Heritage listed forests, barely covered in some of our media and not visited by our Prime Minister. In the north, adjacent to where the Great Barrier Reef is still in a state of shock from the 50% die-off of its corals uh, over the course of successive summer bleaching events, we saw the devastation of hinterland around Townsville with a 100-year flood. Half a million cattle are believed to have died, along with goodness knows how many other animals and the disruption and devastation to people's lives and the death of some human beings as well. And then closer to home, we have the Menindee fish die-off. Literally millions of animals floating to the surface and dying. I went out to Menindee two weeks ago. Menindee is a town of 560 but the wonderful thing of being part of Greenpeace is wherever you go, there are, there are people who are part of the 1.5 million people in Australia who are part of the Greenpeace network. And sure enough, out in Menindee, population of 560, there are some Greenpeace crew. And I went out and I spent the day and I went to some of these spots and I stood with the fella who cradled 60-year-old fish dying in his arms and, and wept. Because what do you do? And what all of these things have in common is they are all in whole or in part driven by global warming. 
our consequences that are on us now. So global warming is not a thing that we, if we stop it now, that's great and it won't happen. It's a thing that is already happening and it is a question of how bad we let it get. Well, everyone listens to David Attenborough, right? As soon as you see the name, you hear the voice inside your head, that earnest head that has guided us through so many Sunday evenings of looking at at wonderful critters. We are at a unique stage in our history. Never before have we had such an awareness of what we are doing to the planet. And never before have we had the power to do something about that. What Attenborough said, though, the, and I, the reason why I use this particular grab is he used the term civilization. Now, this audience, this glam audience, this is an audience of people whose responsibility is the maintenance of civilization. You are, if you like, the gardeners of our civilization. You are the parents of our civilization. You are the guardians of our civilization. Maybe in loco parentis is the right phrase. And here you are being warned that that great and grand project that connect all of you back to the Library of Alexandria or the first archives of papyrus in the Egyptian world, you are being warned that your project faces an end if we don't act on global warming. Now, What we also know, and this also came out of the IPCC report, although I think anyone who lives in Australia knows this particularly acutely, is that the science can't save us. What we don't need is more science. More science is useful, but we don't need it for political action because the level of confidence and certainty about the effects of global warming are beyond any sensible doubt. And so here we have the scientists saying, look, it's actually not up to us now. It's, it's a question of politics. We have to shift the politics. Well, what does that mean for those of us in this room? So what I'm sharing with you here is the statement that sits at the heart of everything that, that I and the, the 1.5 million crew who are kind of, you know, my buddies, um, probably some of you are, hopefully. This is the single sentence theory of change that is at the heart of everything we do. We ignite the shared social, economic, political and cultural power of people to win a just and healthy planet. And in case you want it, there's no magic to the order of the cultural, social, political and economic, and I do sort of move them from time to time. But what matters is that we have them all there. Now, what you'll notice about that is that it's people-driven, but it recognises that although there is an overwhelming public majority for action, not just on climate change, but a whole range of social justice and public equity issues that that latent demand requires ignition and that ignition comes from us working together. And this statement also recognises that it is a contest and it is a contest, hence the use of the word win, it is a contest because there are very powerful vested interests that, bizarre as it may sound, are lined up to try and ensure the destruction of civilization and the biosphere. 
This sort of surprised moment of silence then. Did he really say that? Yes. Now, you'll all be familiar, of course, with Vitruvian Man. And this is a Vitruvian Man being laid out by uh, some Greenpeace crew in the Arctic on some fraying arc sheets, uh, ice sheets, um, uh, with materials that were no doubt double-checked and triple-checked for their environmental qualities. So they're not just lots of pairs of lighting-up sneakers, for example. And I use that simply as the symbol of the idea of culture as power. The idea of connecting one of the best-known symbols of the essence of our humanity, though in brackets note the gender specificity of that, close brackets, to the fraying of the Arctic ice as one of the most powerful symbols of our rapidly deteriorating natural world. So we work, Greenpeace in particular, we work with cultural symbols, with meaning makers, with cultural power. Why has he just put up the one ring from the Lord of the Rings? But there is something about the metaphor of the one ring that rules them all that is important in the context of climate change, and it is this. Indulge me for a moment. Think about an issue you really care about. Maybe it's a work issue. Maybe it's a private issue, rights of some form, equality of some form. Just have that issue in mind. If we don't deal with climate change, that issue is done. Whatever you do on it, it's got a full stop. Because climate change is the ultimate risk magnifier. It is the ultimate deteriorator of everything that we care about. And it is, if you like, the sharpest abbreviation of hope that we can imagine, if we can't deal with climate change, all of the rest of it doesn't matter. Now, in the context of my organisation, that has meant an awful lot of really hard decisions about not working on things that we really, really love and care about. Because if we can't halt global warming, the rest of it just falls away. It is the one ring that rules them all, all issues, the one ring that binds them. You're listening to Glam City on 2SER 107.3. To download this show, head to 2SER.com or your favourite podcast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with support from 2SER. On this episode, we're featuring a keynote address by the CEO of Greenpeace Australia, David Ritter, at this year's Glam Slam. And the chanting you're hearing is from thousands of students who showed up at Town Hall in Sydney on March the 15th for the student strike for climate. Let's hear back from David. So what I hope to have conveyed at this point, the sort of platform for the rest of what I want to say, is that we have a massive, urgent planetary crisis okay you can put that on the negative side of the ledger and then on the positive side of the ledger we have a set of really important powerful and much loved institutions represented in this room and that is really exciting and what i want to do now is pivot to talking about what you might do with that glam power because it is energy that can power what we need to do and 
a little bit like if one of your loved ones is sick, you do everything you can for them. The earth is sick, our home is sick. We need to do everything we can and that means turning our attention to that thing, to that one ring, if you like, at the risk of horribly mixing my metaphors. It's a question of how those glam institutions on the happy side of the ledger, how might that power be turned to meeting the planetary crisis? And I want to offer five suggestions. And the first is, and I'll, I'll go hurry through the first two because in a sense they're the most practical ones. So the first is you can simply within your institutions become practical clean energy champions. Now what that means is that get your workplace to commit to buying 100% clean energy because what it does when every workplace commits to buying 100% clean energy is it just drives clean energy demand. And the thing about your workplaces is you are totemically important because you are meaning makers. So your imprint will be larger than just the amount of power that you buy. You can also choose clean energy suppliers. Um, you can initiate conversations about clean energy and any holdings of whatever kind you may have, financial holdings if you do, if you have trusts and so on. Uh, you can divest those uh, from dirty institutions to the extent that that's feasible. And I understand that sometimes there are institutional arrangements that mean it's simply not lawful to do so, but to the extent that you can, do it. So that's number one. It's all those practical steps, just a practical agenda for being uh, using your glam power to be clean energy champions. Then the second thing you can do is you can plan as if physical reality is physical reality. In your planning, in your long-term planning, you can talk about what it means. Because what are you going to do if you have record heat waves going beyond 50 degrees every summer that your institutions can't cope with? What are you going to do if there are storms that your institutions can't cope with? If there are fires your institutions can't cope with? If there are new waves of disease your institutions can't cope with? There is no business plan for a four degree rise in temperature, which some predictions are now saying is likely for the end of this century. There's no way of getting through that. So to be planning for this stuff means with all love and respect that you need to both plan for the shocks that are now inevitable because of the action that hasn't been taken. So all of the reality of that needs to be factored into your planning and avoiding the disaster that would be 1.5 degree or going beyond 1.5 degrees, let alone 4 or 6 or 8 or 10, also needs to be factored in. Bring it into your planning. And the great thing about that too is you feel a sense of liberation because truth does make you free. You stop having to screen out the truth. And actually if you feel freer on the other side of that and you will also liberate all who read your plans. And let's face it, reading a three-year planning document isn't usually liberating. This is why it can be. All right. Let's talk specifically now about an issue that is difficult. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about what we know that coal fire power stations do. So here is Professor Jim Hansen, who's one of the scientists, is really a foundational uh, public communicator about the dangers of global warming, formerly of NASA. And Jim Hansen 
said now 10 years ago that coal-fired power plants were death factories because of the number of people who would die as a direct consequence of global warming, but also we know about the direct consequences of, of coal dust. Um, in uh, The Cold Truth, the book I was the lead author of published last year, there are a set of wonderful guest chapters in there, one by the traditional owners, um, the Wangan and Jagalingu peoples who have fought their long and unique and tenacious struggle against the Adani mine, others by experts at the back of the book. And one of those experts is Professor Hilary Bambrick. And she asked if she could call her chapter 300,000 Children uh, because Hilary is a professor in public health and that was one estimation of the number of children worldwide that would die as a consequence of coal pollution within a given period but it's not just coal it's oil it's gas now that creates a tricky problem if you are an institution that is looking for sponsors you cannot in good conscience and in serious honoring of your missions take money from fossil fuel companies. You can't. Because what you are doing is taking money from those who, although it is still legal, are hastening the end of civilization. It is time for those sponsorship relationships to be over. It is time for them to end. A few years ago, Lego ended a 40-year sponsorship arrangement with Shell because they deemed it was no longer appropriate to their brand. Now, one might say there is an appropriate uh, synchronicity in going to fossil fuel companies to sponsor displays about civilizations that have been destroyed. Um, and no doubt you could sort of do it with an archly ironic tone. But better still is that you say in your institutions you will cut all existing sponsorship ties and you will never again accept any sponsorship because it is simply inappropriate for an institution dedicated to the maintenance of civilization to take money from those who are destroying it. Right. Let's move on from the tricky conversation to a happier conversation. You are storytellers and you are the enablers of storytelling. And I address that comment particularly to the archivists in the room. This is a book by Joel Gerges. Now, Joel is a brilliant scholar a wonderful communicator and a very lovely human being who has written The Ultimate Mad Uncle Silencer. She has done an unprecedented archival study of temperature records in Australia. So any time some bozo says, oh, but it's always been hot in Australia, Dorothea McKellar! <laughs> I have heard, we've all heard it once or twice. I love a sunburnt country. That work, that brilliant work, and she's a brilliant speaker about her work, was enabled by archivists. So for the archivists in the room, you are enabling the storytelling that drives change. And remember, what we know is that we have enough science, but the politics won't shift and what we also know is what drives shifts in change in politics are a mixture of material change. So people run out of fresh water or they, their wages are stagnating or they're not getting decent health care and the stories that we tell about it. And if one looks at the US, in a sense what we have is on the Trump side, the story being told is all one of blame 
But then there are the stories that might be told that are the stories that are the essence of your civilizational mission. And they are stories about building, about creativity, about love, about people in place. And so I would urge you that your glam power can be applied to telling the stories that will drive our urgent transition to a livable planet, a more just planet. You can tell the stories that can drive that. So what might be at the heart of some of those stories? Well, what about if at the heart of the stories you told was a theme like people working together can achieve anything? Just think of how that cuts against the messages that you constantly get. Everything that is worth anything, all that we care about, is built by people working together. What you nurture is the product of societies. Nurture that urgent story that people working together can achieve anything. To quote Josh Fox, the US filmmaker, that community is mightier than the storm. You can tell those stories and people will believe you because you are trusted institutions, makers of meaning, secular churches. You can tell those stories and know that you will be powering our path through the crisis. Last thing, my fifth thing I want to say is as you're telling these stories, as you're driving the language of togetherness, of commitment, of beauty, of justice, of meaning-making, of regenerative agriculture, of clean energy, driving instead these stories of meaning, of being people who are actually in the arena because we only have one arena, which is the planet we all live on. As you're driving these stories, you can reach out to friends because there are lots of organisations who have as their principal aim, I guess, the wrestle with global warming. And, of course, we'd love to do stuff with you, I'd love to do stuff with you, and that's not just because I feel at home in libraries and museums, although that is part of it, but because of the power that you bring and because organisations and movements are always looking for partners. I've always loved Greenpeace. I love our independence. We've never taken any money from any government or any business. We never will. La, la, la. I love it. So, of course, I'd love to have you as part of our crew. But honestly, if we're not the right match for your G, L, A or M, there are other great outfits out there. There are our dear cousins at the Australian Conservation Foundation. There's the wonderful gang down at uh, Get Up, uh, New South Wales Conservation Council that we've been marching in lockstep with as allies in the New South Wales state election. Uh, Solar citizens, pick your friends and allies. But there there are others with whom you can work. And those sorts of partnerships are so dynamic. So... Who knows what institution that is? Melbourne Zoo, that's right. Now, I always like holding up a Melbourne institution at a Sydney gathering um, (laughs) because it just increases the creative tension in the room, I find. Zoos Victoria, this is their flagship zoo in Melbourne. And that is what you see when you enter fighting extinction. Now, this is an old, by Australian standards, conservative institution where people used to grow and throw peanuts to monkeys and ride on elephants and go and laugh at the funny creatures. And then the extraordinary team at Zoos Victoria, led by some 
inspirational leaders, including uh, Jenny Gray, the CEO, and Rachel Lowry, who up until a couple of weeks ago was the Director of Conservation, turned the institution on its head and said, what are we here for? Our mission is not providing a sort of living lunar park. Our mission is fighting extinction. That goes to the core of what we are. I think there is incredibly significant analog there for institutions of culture because what you face is the annihilation of civilization in this century and i think that your mission now must be fighting annihilation because if we cannot tackle global warming in enough time our civilizations face annihilation because there's still a world to play for. This doesn't have to end badly. It would have been infinitely better if we had acted earlier. But you, better than anyone, know what it means to build a bridge through the fog. Because that is what libraries and galleries and archives and museums do. And it's why every proponent of genocide tries to wipe you out whenever they get the chance and it is why barbarians of a contemporary kind want to defund you and shut you down whenever they get the chance because you are the carriers of meaning through the fog of crisis and uncertainty and change we can get there we don't know how long we don't know what it what it will take, what it looks like ultimately, but we can see the bridge through the fog. We just have to concentrate our energies on building it. So get your tools out. Thank you. And that brings us to the close of this episode of Glam City. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the 2SER website, 2SER.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. A special thank you to David Ritter from Greenpeace Australia for his inspirational and challenging discussion on glam power. You can find David on Twitter at David underscore Ritter. As Tamsin mentioned, the school strike for climate was on the same day as David's keynote address at Glam Slam this year. We'll put links in the show notes to more of this information on why students are taking action on some of the issues raised by David's discussion, as well as his challenge for GLAM institutions to take a more activist stance on issues facing us today. Free stuff is the way! That's why we're on strike today! Free stuff is the way! That's why we're on strike today!